This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day, welcome to episode 39 of AFF On Air. It is Saturday the 27th of June 2020 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In today's episode, my guest is Hossein Saifzadeh, an aerospace engineer who's also an active Australian Frequent Flyer member. While working at Boeing some years ago now, Hussein designed a system that manages the way that an aircraft wing moves while the plane is flying through turbulence. Now, believe it or not, the exact same principle is now used in noise-cancelling headphones, which are a must-have nowadays for any serious frequent flyer. In this interview, Hussein explains exactly how that noise-cancelling headphone technology works. And in a completely unrelated topic, if you think there are good credit card deals here in Australia, wait till you see what's possible in America. Later in the episode, I'll also chat to Hussein about the benefits of US credit cards and how Australians might be able to get one. That's coming up, but first, here's what's making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And of course, there have been two big pieces of news over the last few days. The first was last Thursday's announcement that Qantas will permanently cut a staggering 6,000 jobs and extend the stand-downs of a further 15,000 staff, particularly those involved in international flying. In outlining the airline's three-year COVID recovery plan, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce said that he doesn't expect international flying to resume for at least another year, other than perhaps to New Zealand or the Pacific. Health Minister Greg Hunt made a similar comment earlier this week that international travel is unlikely to return until there's a safe vaccine. Qantas has already removed all international flying from its schedule, except for a few limited trans-Tasman flights until late October, although the cancellations will likely be extended further at some point. As such, Qantas has now made a final decision that it will retire all of its remaining Boeing 747s, marking the end of an era for the flying kangaroo. At this point, there's now only one 747 left in Australia, and it's due to fly from Sydney to Los Angeles and then on to Victorville for scrapping next Tuesday the 30th of June. Qantas will also put its entire Airbus A380 fleet into deep storage, while writing down their value significantly. The planes could remain in storage for up to three years, and some may never return to commercial service for Qantas. Making matters worse for Qantas, there's virtually no second-hand market for A380s. They're just too big and expensive for most airlines in the current climate. Overall, Qantas hopes to reduce costs by $15 billion during the next three years of reduced flying activity. It's also targeting $1 billion in ongoing annual cost savings from 2023. Qantas also announced that it plans to raise $1.9 billion in new equity to accelerate the airline's recovery. And A321 and Boeing 7879 deliveries have been deferred. Some leased aircraft may also be returned to less as earlier than planned as their current lease periods expire. Overall, about 100 Qantas planes will be grounded for at least the foreseeable future. But Alan Joyce was surprisingly optimistic about the long-term future of Project Sunrise, Qantas's plan to fly non-stop from Sydney to London and New York, which was indefinitely placed on hold last month. The other big news was yesterday's announcement that Bain Capital, a US private investment firm based in Boston, which has very deep pockets, is set to become the new owner of Virgin Australia. Virgin's administrators have now entered into a sale agreement with Bain Capital, which plans to turn Virgin Australia into a hybrid airline that targets both corporate and leisure travellers. 
but there are still no guarantees that the sale will go through. The proposal will need to be voted on in a meeting of creditors, some of which stand to lose, well, most of their investments in mid-August. And a counter bid by major bondholders does remain a possibility. Bain Capital does say that it will honour all Virgin Australia flight credits and velocity frequent flyer points, which is definitely good news, uh, as well as investing to integrate velocity more closely with Virgin Australia, also good news. But the Tiger Air brand is unlikely to return. Meanwhile, the ACCC has forced Qantas to contact customers issued with flight credits to inform them of their entitlements to refunds. The ACCC alleges that Qantas failed to adequately inform customers of their right to a refund in communications between the 17th of March and the 31st of May. Qantas also pressured some customers into cancelling their bookings for a credit themselves so that they wouldn't have to be issuing a refund when Qantas later cancelled their flights. It appears that if you requested a flight credit for a Qantas flight that later went on to be cancelled, you can now contact Qantas to request a full refund instead. If you didn't request a flight credit but were automatically issued with one when Qantas cancelled your flight, you can also call Qantas to request a refund and that's always been the case. But thanks to the ACCC's intervention, it seems that you can also now convert your flight credit into a refund if you were due to travel between the 17th of March and the 30th of May, regardless of whether your flight ended up operating. According to the Qantas Conditions of Carriage, passengers are entitled to a refund for flights cancelled due to events beyond the airline's control, if alternative flights offered are not acceptable to the customer. Meanwhile, Qantas has extended the validity of flight credits issued due to COVID-19 by a year. They are now valid for travel until the 31st of December 2022. Velocity Frequent Flyer will finally refund Virgin Australia reward seat bookings that have been cancelled for travel booked up until the 30th of September this year. This had already been Velocity's policy prior to Virgin Australia entering administration on the 21st of April, and in fact even for about another four weeks after that. But in mid-May, Velocity retrospectively changed its policy to say that it would no longer issue refunds for the points and taxes paid on cancelled Virgin Australia reward bookings that were made prior to the 21st of April, even if those flights were cancelled by the airline. At the time, we questioned how this could possibly be legal, especially since Velocity Frequent Flyer is not in administration. Cancel, uh, cancellation fees will be waived if you contact Velocity Frequent Flyer to request a refund before your travel date or by the 30th of September this year. And Velocity members that have already requested a refund for affected bookings are now being contacted by email. Travel agents in New South Wales, including online travel agents, will be required to disclose if they receive a commission, referral fee or any other financial incentive from their suppliers from July 1. The new rule is part of increased disclosure obligations that will apply to all intermediaries operating in the state of New South Wales, which also include things like real estate agents and comparison websites, but do also apply to travel agents. The new state-based laws also require businesses to disclose terms of or conditions in contracts that could substantially disadvantage the customer. Travel agents generally receive a commission for selling international flights, cruises, holiday packages and travel insurance, uh, and especially travel insurance where commissions of around 40% are not uncommon. 
and agents may also be rewarded with other incentives from their suppliers such as airlines, such as bonus payments or freebies for meeting certain sales targets. And in some cases, these incentives could influence the agent's recommendations to clients. Travel agents will now be required to take reasonable steps to ensure customers are aware that they have a financial arrangement with the supplier. But agents do not have to disclose the type of incentive nor the amount of any commission being paid. And while sadly this won't come as a surprise to most people, we do now officially know that international passengers coming in and out of Australia during the month of April this year were down by a staggering 98%. There was also a 97.2% reduction in domestic airline passengers travelling within Australia in April 2020 due to the lockdowns and border closures. According to data from the Bureau of Infrastructure, Transport and Regional Development, just 16,211 people arrived in Australia on international flights in April 2020, down from 1.7 million in April of 2019. And of course, all of those 16,000 people would have had to go into hotel quarantine. Around three times as many people left Australia than the number of arriving passengers, and almost half of them flew with Qatar Airways, now this is just mind-blowing. Qatar Airways normally has a market share in Australia of 3%. In April, its market share was 44.5%. Some of the passenger numbers are also just staggering. For example, China Airlines flew 33 flights from uh, Taiwan to Australia during April. And in total, among uh, all of those flights, it flew just 146 passengers. That's an average of 1.4% of seats being filled. And that's not even the worst of it. Air Carlin carried just eight passengers from Noumea to Australia during April on seven flights. Although at least on the return flights back to New Caledonia, it did fly back 310 people. But perhaps the most dire figures belong to Royal Brunei Airlines, which continued operating twice-weekly Boeing 787 flights direct between Melbourne and Brunei. Across a total of nine return flights, Royal Brunei flew only six passengers to Australia, down from 4,823 passengers in the same month last year. 44 passengers flew from Australia back to Brunei with that airline. At least most of these airlines would have also carried some cargo, so that would offset some of these numbers a little bit, but just wow, some of those numbers are simply dire. I've written a detailed article with lots more interesting stats and figures from April called uh, Australian International Flights Down 98% in April 2020, and you can find this linked in the episode notes, along with other Australian Frequent Flag Gazette articles covering the topics I've just spoken about. Well, that's the news for this fortnight. For more regular updates and deals, head to australianfrequentflyer.com.au, subscribe to the Gazette, or follow us on Facebook. Well, if you often travel long haul, like many frequent flyers, you probably have used noise-cancelling headphones. They can be an absolute godsend, especially on long flights if you've got screaming children or you're just trying to get to some uh, get some sleep and there's a lot of background noise on the plane. But have you ever wondered how noise-cancelling headphones cancel noise? Well, here to tell me all about that is Hossein Saifzadeh, who is an Australian Frequent Flyer member with the handle Hossein AU, and he has a PhD in aerospace engineering and used to work for Boeing. Welcome to the podcast, Hossein. Hi, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. 
So you worked um, at Boeing designing composite materials, and you also worked on the team that developed the tail of the Boeing 777, which uh, in itself is quite interesting. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Oh, of, of course. Um, yeah, that, that is going back quite, quite a few years now. Uh, but when I, when I started my, doing my master's degree in aerospace engineering down in Melbourne at Boeing factory, um, we started developing um, uh, composite materials at the time it was a very new technology so people didn't know how it would react over a long period of um, use so we did a lot of um, R&D research and development on how composite materials behave when they are exposed to various vibrations and fatigue and moisture and those sort of things so that is how I um, got involved with composite materials uh, many many years ago um, as part of that research, we started looking into uh, develop development of cracks within composite materials um, uh, as they are being used, um, how fatigue sets in. Um, now, um, for people who might not be familiar with uh, fatigue as a phenomenon, is that if you get a piece of uh, metal and you bend it back and forth a few times, it starts cracking and then it... Uh, it uh, Eventually it'll snap, right? Eventually it snaps off. Um, it happens with all different materials and composite materials are no exception. Now, um, in the case of aircrafts, uh, one of the main causes of having uh, big maintenance is looking for those small microscopic cracks within the main structure of the aircraft. And that is part of the maintenance, right? Um, when you want to use a new material as part of the certification, you have to go through all of these process to make sure to satisfy all, satisfy all the regulatory bodies that you have thought about this and you know when the th um, cracks might appear and you actually cater for those as part of your maintenance regimen. Now, we are looking into composite materials and, and uh, fatigue and as part of that, we are sort of looking into how we can reduce vibration within the structures. Because as um, probably all of the listeners have noticed that, you know, as, as you fly, the wings go up and down as you go through turbulence, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that puts a lot of pressure um, on the wing. Now, when you start using composite materials, we wanted to see how it would behave. And in order to reduce um, onset of fatigue, we thought, what is the best way to reduce the vibration in the first place? Right. So I started doing some research into sensing vibration within aircraft wings and then trying to do something about that. So what I did was to, um, as you develop composite materials, we started embedding some sensors within the structure to sense how the vibration throughout the wing is, um, is propagating and then also embed some actuators to try to compensate and cancel the vibration. So basically the wing, the wing becomes uh, virtually stiffer, mm -hmm. right? Because you are pre uh, preventing vibrations within the wing. That works very well in reducing uh, fatigue on composite materials, but because the wing now has become virtually more stiff, the right quality of the aircraft suffers ah. because the wing going up and down in turbulence is like a cushion, is like the suspension in a car. Right, it might look a little bit confronting if you're looking out the window during turbulence and you see the wing going up and down, but that is, that is actually smoothing out the ride, uh, so you want definitely. it to do that. And you of course the wing it. is designed to do that, right? That's right, oh, it's designed to do that. But if the wing doesn't do that, then the ride becomes very choppy, mm. right? It is like a car that doesn't have suspensions, right? Mm. So 
I started doing some research and trying to find out where the balance is to try to reduce these vibrations as well as maintaining right quality. Now, um, I developed some, some techniques in sensing the vibration and then in real time send some commands to the wing to try to reduce the vibration but not quite eliminate it. That was very successful. And then that technology was then picked up by manufacturers of noise cancelling Ex headphones. Exactly right. Exactly right. I should yeah. have patented it. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so um, the same technology is applicable in noise cancelling. Think of waves in a um, surface of a lake, right? Um, if you throw in a pebble, there are waves created, or there is a wave created, and it sort of propagates away from where you drop the, the pebble, right? Now imagine that you throw in a pebble a bit further away. The two waves meet and they start interacting because of the two pebbles that you sent in, right? Mm -hmm. Now imagine that you, you throw in the second pebble and time it so perfectly that the wave of the second pebble come in and the peak and the troughs of the second wave interact with the peaks and troughs of the first wave and they cancel each other out. Ah. That would be a perfect timing if you could possibly uh, throw the second pebble like that. Yeah. Right? Of course, in reality, it's extremely unlikely for that to happen. Now, the way that we, uh, we hear noise is exactly the same phenomenon, is that there are waves in the air and then we kind of hear those waves on the surface on, on, in the air, right? Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that the concept is exactly the same as those vibration cancelling within a wing in, in that you sense the vibration, you, in real time, you send a signal back to try to interact and cancel the vibration in a wing. You do the same thing with, with the noise in that noise comes in as a wave, it hits your eardrum and you hear it. Now, if somehow you could send a signal, a wave, and um, a noise that is exactly the same but opposite direction. So the peaks and troughs, uh, troughs are reversed. As they hit your eardrum, they cancel each other out. So basically you don't hear anything. Oh, right? So in a noise cancelling headphone, how exactly does they work? Does that work? So is there like a microphone on the outside Definitely. of the headphones that detects the noise coming in and then... That's right. That is like, you've, you've got it. You've got it. In that every noise cancelling headphone needs to have a microphone outside uh, pointing outwards. And as noise come in towards your eardrums, the microphone picks it up. Then the electronics need to go and amplify that uh, microphone noise, reverse it and time it and send it through a speaker to your uh, towards your eardrum, but time it perfectly so as it hits your eardrum, it needs to be cancelled. And you need to time that because if you don't time it, they might actually amplify each other. Ah. Right? Because if you send, imagine going back to the surface of a lake, if you draw in, uh, drop in two pebbles and it happens that the peaks and troughs of the two waves are in sync, Mm -hmm. then you get double the amplitude, the height of the waves, ah. right? You don't want that. You want the other way. You want the, them to cancel each other, not amplify each other. So it's very important for the electronics to time the noise that is coming toward your ear as well as the one it generates so that they cancel each other out exactly as they hit your eardrum. 
Right. So I guess if you're wearing noise-cancelling headphones and they're turned on, then the microphone is always listening to always. what's going on externally. What happens if you put your finger over the microphone or something is blocking it? It it, uh, it muffles it. So the microphone can can I still hear some of the noise, but you've muffled it. So the noise it generates and sends to your, your, your eardrums is not quite as well as it could have been. So it is always prudent to make sure that the, uh, the microphone on the outside of noise-canceling headphones are not blocked. Mm-hmm. With the new headphones uh, that are coming out uh, since last year, uh, the tendency is to have more than one, one microphone pointing outwards. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if you have a different level of noise coming from different directions, as it might happen, for example, you might sitting at the front of the airplane, which most of your listeners hopefully are hopefully. at some stage. At some point, yes. At some point, when the lockdown finishes, yes, they are sitting at the front of the plane. The noise is different. The noise profile is different than if someone is sitting at the back of the plane oh. or over the wing. And right? so, a really good pair of noise cancelling headphones would be able to detect which direction where, that where it's is coming, coming from. from. That's right. And left and right ear are different because if you are sitting on the left hand side or right hand side, you are closer to one end engine rather than the other. Mm. And the idea is that then um, each of the corresponding microphones pointing towards the engine picks up a more volume, uh, a higher level of noise coming from the engine so they can compensate for that. Really top of the line uh, noise cancelling headphones, they have more than one speaker inside the headphone as well. well. So you can have a surround sound inside the headphone and then they can cancel the headphone, the, the noise coming from let's say at the back on your left-hand side, so they can cancel it appropriately. So you can still hear some conversation that someone is having you know, having with you, but all the background noise are canceled. Oh, wow. So right. is that the difference between, say, a $100 and a $600 pair of noise-canceling headphones? That's right, definitely. Uh, of course, the quality of the actual sound uh, that they generate, uh, the, the more fidelity that the headphone has, uh, the better quality of the microphone and the electronics, the longer the battery life and those sort of things all play into that. Mm. But the main difference between top-of-the-line uh, latest Bose or Sony headphone versus the model before the, the, the last one is the number of microphones and some of the electronics they've got. Mm. Additionally, because it is such a complex mathematical cal- calculations and everything that you need to do in real time to try to cancel the noise, they usually optimize the electronics for a certain level of noise, certain kind of noise. Majority of noise canceling headphones are optimized for aircraft engine noise. Right. So yeah. they are not as good in cancelling different type of noise. Like a crying baby sitting next to That's you. That's right. Exactly example. right. Exactly right. Right. One of the difference between the very latest incarnation of noise cancelling headphones than the one from last year is that they come in with more number of profiles they can cater to cancel the noise off. The latest Sony and Bose can switch between those dynamically. They can detect if, for example, you're you're riding in a car or you're flying in a plane, they detect and sense that the noise is a car engine noise or an aircraft noise, and they switch to the appropriate profile so they can cancel the right type of noise. That's incredible. And it's all done in a very small space for electronics. Yeah. And you have to put in all the battery and everything else in there as well, and that's why they are 
hundreds of dollars. So what's the difference? There's there's two main types of noise cancelling mm-hmm. earphones. There's the yes. in-ear earphones and there's mm-hmm. the over-ear ones that kind of look like yes. earmuffs. What's the difference between those? Well, it's it's actually very interesting. They both are pretty good, the latest versions, but they are good in different respects. Uh, the one that are over the ear, they actually create um, a um, passive noise cancelling or passive muffling effect. So the ones over the ear, they reduce the noise automatically anyway. Right, because there's the physical barrier there between physical the ear barrier. and the outside. Well, the, right, definitely. Like, like how earmuffs work. I That's guess. right, exactly right. right. So they muffle the noise anyway. Even if they are off, they muffle the noise better than any other type of you know headphone. So they do a better job in doing that. But going back to what I was explaining about the technology of making sure that the, the waves or the noise need to be cancelled, they need to cancel each other as they hit your eardrum. Mm-hmm. So the closer the speaker is to your eardrum, the more perfect it can time it, right? If you have a speaker that is two meters away from you, then the electronics need to consider the time the noise takes oh. to travel from the speaker to your eardrum. And we're talking here about milliseconds, right? Milliseconds. But it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference because if you, for example, imagine you have a noise cancelling speaker two meters away from you, mm-hmm. right? And it happens that it's cancelled everything perfectly, right? If you move half a meter away from the perfect spot, the waves might interact in a way that they amplify each other. Mm. So it might defeat the purpose. So in if the speaker is away from the further away from you it is, the more susceptible it becomes to where you're located. The timing between the speaker and your eardrum, the time it takes for a wave to get from the speaker to your eardrum. So the closer you get the speaker to your eardrum, the better you can time it. Okay. So they right. both, I guess, have their pros and cons. Do you think there's Definitely. one particular type which is better for um, people sitting on an airplane? Each one of those is good in doing the electronic bit or the physical bit, yeah. right? So overall, they both are pretty good. It depends on what type of, uh, now we are talking about how pedantic you are about the quality of the of the music that you listen to. Sure. Because the over-the-ear ones, there is more space, even though it's still limited, but more space to try to put in better speakers and those sort of things yeah. in there. And more space for batteries and everything else. Um, but um, technology is improving you know, on a daily basis, so I'm sure even the in, in-ear speakers in a year from now are going to uh, do the best of over-ear headphones quality of sound. Yeah, and I guess, I guess it also comes down to what is more comfortable for you right. uh, to wear on the plane as well. That's right, exactly. Some, some people get uh, really um, annoyed when they, have, uh, when they wear ear, in-ear um, uh, speakerphones. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, for example, in my case, I found it much more difficult to sleep if you've got over-the-ear uh, headphones. That's one of the things I've noticed as well, especially um, if you're in economy, hopefully not too often, but it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I tend to sleep on my side and it's kind of awkward with the over-ear That's right. um, headphones exactly. yeah, to get comfortable. Exactly. So it depends on what works for you, but they, they both are amazing technologies. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And who would have thought that um, the technology that was initially created to smooth out the fluctuation of an aircraft wing moving in the air would then be used uh, to create the wonderful technology of noise-cancelling <laughs> headphones? Absolutely. Well, thanks, Hussain. I'm going to take a quick break, and Hussain's going to come back and talk about something completely different in just a moment. Did you know that you can get more from your Australian Frequent Flyer membership by upgrading to Silver or Gold membership? For just $50 a year, Silver members see no advertisements on the vast majority of community forum pages, 
And for only $75 a year, in addition, Gold members can receive discounted travel goods and services valued at over $400 a year, including discounts on Qantas Club, NordVPN, Expert Flyer, and more. Most importantly, by upgrading your Australian Frequent Flyer membership, though, you'll be supporting the website and this podcast. For more information, visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au forward slash upgrade. Well, I'm joined uh, once again by Hussein Saifzadeh. And uh, one of the things that I'm very often asked about is U.S. credit cards. Now, I know a lot of Australians uh, use credit cards to earn frequent flyer points, and there are some regular, very good sign-up bonuses here in Australia where you can earn hundreds of thousands even of uh, frequent flyer points uh, for signing up for a credit card. But the Australian credit card market, especially since the Reserve Bank made some changes a few years ago to interchange fees, has not been anywhere near as good from a frequent flyer's perspective as the U.S. credit card market. Here in Australia, many credit cards will have a maximum number of points you can earn during a month or a billing cycle, or they'll have points capping. Over in the US, though, it's the complete opposite. They often uh, have promotions to encourage you to spend more on your card each month. And uh, you've also got so many more options in terms of airline transfer partners that you can transfer your credit card reward points to. Hussein, you have the Chase Sapphire Preferred Card. First of all, what does that card actually, uh, what can you do with that card? Chase Sapphire Preferred Card is a normal Visa card, so you can spend it, you can use it anywhere a Visa card is accepted. Um, for the past year or so, this has been my go-to card because Visa is much more um, readily acceptable um, in Australia. Before that, I had a number of Amex cards. I still hold an Amex Hilton card in the US because that's a free-for-life card. Mm-hmm. And just by having it, it gives you a Hilton Gold card. Uh, membership tier or something they used to have a card like that in australia and it was discontinued but of course the u.s still has it that's right of course (laughs) (laughs) um so i i still have that i i also had amex um charge cards and those sort of things in the u.s they have a lot more perks than the one in australia um and much cheaper as well so anyway back to this chase card it's the one that i um i use um, almost every day even now that i'm back in australia um one of the advantages of uh, the ones in the cars in the U.S., exactly as you said, is that the the point uh, are not capped. Um, especially if you use Visa or Mastercard, there is no extra credit card surcharge in Australia. And the advantage is that you can transfer the points to any number of airlines. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners um, are aware. Um, in Australia, Qantas specifically charges uh, huge uh, fuel surcharges. Yes. So usually the points is not as valuable as the ones in the US. Absolutely. And I, I know in Australia, as you say, about one in three people earn Qantas points uh, on their credit cards. You do have, for example, American Express membership rewards, which gives you a few more options. You can transfer to Velocity, mm-hmm. Singapore Airlines, Asia Miles, Emirates, and a few others. Um, Diners Club has a few, and there's the pres- the City Prestige card has a fair number of transfer partners. But they there are virtually no SkyTeam partners, and there's still a lot of airlines which are really inaccessible in Australia in terms of earning points with credit cards. Right. So what what um, airlines can you transfer your Chase Ultimate Rewards points to? There are a number of airlines, uh, good airlines you can transfer the uh, Chase points to. 
the card that I currently use, um, you can transfer to airlines like, you know, British Airways, you can transfer to Air France, you can transfer to um, Emirates and those sort of things. Uh, there is a list that I'll go through in, in a second. But the point is that you can transfer to whichever alliance that you are uh, you want mm. to use you're about to use and some of those don't really have any fuel surcharges so that makes a huge huge difference um, for example I can fly from Australia to the US using Qantas points and I need to spend hundreds close to a thousand dollar in if I fly business class or first class to the US in just fuel surcharges or I can use American Airlines uh, points, uh, fly on the same aircraft, mm. but I only spend like you know thirty bucks or something like that in um, in actual taxes. Yeah, that's a really good point because American Airlines' advantage not only charges fewer miles to redeem for Qantas that's business right. and first class flights, but that's no right. carrier charges that's at all. At, at all. Just the just the you know the genuine government and airport taxes. Genuine. Well, one of the things that really gets me when uh, when people talk about. Uh, extra pay or copay, um, but they lump fuel surcharges and any carrier import charges mm. with actual genuine taxes. And I always sort of the tendency for me is to try to get in and correct them, say, no, 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 these are separate charges. One of them is actual government charges. The <laughs> other one is charges that shouldn't be there. I think the Qantas website calls them air transportation charges as their category for these carrier charges. Uh, which is... Which means it, nothing. Which means nothing. It it boils my blood in that. Like, imagine for example, you go and you go to Macca's and get a sandwich, and as you're about to pay for it, they say, "Oh, by the way, if you pay for electricity, I'm going to charge you another twenty cents for electricity." It's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous, and that is exactly what fuel surcharges are as well. But anyway, um, you can transfer the chase points to a number of airlines, and some of those airlines don't have car- uh, carrier charges or fuel surcharges. Therefore, the points become much more valuable because not all points are created equal. Absolutely. And if we have a look at the Chase Ultimate Rewards Partners, and this is just one example, there are many credit card rewards programs in the US which each have similar sort of setups. Like there's the US Amex program, there's... Uh, there's there is city, there is um, all sorts. City yes. thank you points, yes. yeah, Capital One, there's so many. Like we've got British Airways Executive Club is a transfer partner. We've also got Aer Lingus. Um, we've got over in Star Alliance, Singapore Airlines is there and United. And there's also Air France and KLM in the Sky Team. So you've got all three of the alliances and then we've got Southwest Rapid Rewards. We've got Virgin Atlantic Flying Club, which is an Amex partner here in Australia. There's also JetBlue. Iberia, which is in one world again, Emirates. And then you've also got three hotel programs. That's right. But the beauty of Chase is that the points are extremely flexible in that you can open normal Chase no-fee credit card and those points would be transferable to another set of airlines, like American Airlines and um, other airlines. But if you have multiple Chase accounts, you can move your reward points between those accounts. So for example, Ah. if you want to transfer some Chase points to an airline that is not part of Chase Sapphire, but you have another credit card with Chase, you can transfer this into the other card 
and then transfer to the account that, to the airline that you're interested in. Wow, so much more valuable points um, in terms of yeah, points that you're earning on the credit Definitely. card. Definitely. So I know, and this is one of the number one, this is why it's probably mm. about the number one question I get from yes. people um, interested in credit cards. How can I open a US credit card? <laughs> <laughs> That's now. a $69 million question <laughs> or $69 million so, points question. So do you have to be a US citizen to open a credit card in the United States? Well, uh, we have... Technic technicalities and technicalities. In the US, yes, in order to get a social security number, you need to be either a permanent resident or citizen. Um, and then you apply to internal revenue services, you apply and you get a social security number. It is very similar to Australian tax file number. Yeah. Right? You, have, you have tax file number and here in do Australia. And do you need a social security number to be able to get a credit card though? Well, um, that helps a lot. In, in, in the US, like, in Australia, we use our driver license as the main uh, source of ID. Anywhere sure. you go, they ask for your driver license. And sure. if you don't have it, then it raises some questions like, how come you don't have a driver license, right? It's the same thing in the US with social security number. If you don't have it, you still might get to do what you want to do, but it raises some questions. How come you don't have a social security number? Now, uh, the way around that is that if you are in the US, but somehow you need to lodge a tax return for whatever reason if you have had an income of more than a dollar a year or whatever the case maybe you're there on a work visa for example that's right that's right yeah. you can apply for something analogous to uh, to a social security number um, but you can use that for all internal purposes it's not ssn but it is the same as SSN. So this is an individual taxpayer identification number or ITIN, exactly. right? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So every time they ask you for SSN, you can say, here's my uh, ITIN number, and then use that. Now, um, in order to get a credit card, they need to check your credit history in order to see whether you're eligible or not. Yep. And in order to do that, they need your SSN number to look up your credit history. That's why they ask for it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in order to get that, as I mentioned, you either need to be citizen or permanent resident or have lodged a tax return at some stage in your life. But once you've got that, you have the number for life. Like, you know, um, tax file number in Australia, you've, every person has one and it is for life. It's the same thing. Okay, so I guess if you're in Australia, it's it's impossible to get a U.S. credit card. I guess is the long and short of it. But um, if you're if you're physically in the U.S. and yes. maybe you're you're working there or you have a right to work in the U.S., then then it could be possible. And then and once you have the social security number, you you have it for life. That that is correct. Um, like in in my case, I was there for extended uh, period of time uh, for work, but that is like 10, 20 years ago. And as part of that, I wanted to get a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. um, and when I rocked up to, uh, to the company, they asked me uh, for my social, social security number uh, to put me on a plan, like a one or two year plan or something. Exactly the same as in Australia. If you get a uh, Vodafone or Tertra or Optus you know, mobile phone, they check your credit history before they put you on a plan. Yeah. Um, so they wanted to check my um, social security number and I didn't have one. So I had all sort of you know, problem, uh, problems getting a SIM card in the US at the time. So I ended up uh, getting a social security number. And the way it worked was that um, I lodged the form um, and everything online. Um, and I did write everything as it was. So it was fully above board to say, this is the type of visa I've got. 
this is the case, right? So they gave me an appointment in a couple of weeks from the time I lodged the application, and then they asked me to bring some documentations, which was my passport and everything else. And I also took um, a utility bill. Um, I happened to uh, be renting a place, so I had my utility, gas, you know, electricity, those sort of things. So I took a couple of bills uh, with me as well, and uh, they issued me a social security number. It has been a blessing since then uh, because I now I have a history there um, and mm-hmm. I can I can um, get American credit cards. Yeah, and so you, you you're, are you using this American credit card now to pay for things in Australia as your regular payment card? Well, uh, it has been very interesting with COVID and everything else. Um, yeah. um, even in Australia, they they have a sort of banks that started uh, providing some extra incentives. Like I understand that American Express has uh, extended some ex- uh, bonus uh, categories or something. Yes, they are offering bonus points. I think until July. Or so, um, for, yeah, something for like charge that. card holders, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because yeah, char- yeah, because I don't use a lot of you know Aussie credit cards. That's why I don't <laughs> now. Um, in the US, it's exactly the same thing. A lot of credit cards that are targeted for frequent flyers. They have introduced some bonus categories for um, expenses on the ground, like you know, grocery or restaurants or takeaway or Uber or whatever the case might be. In the case of Chase, they had um, restaurants already as a bonus category, so you would get two points per U.S. dollar expenses on um, on restaurants. Now um, they have introduced because of COVID, they have introduced bonus category for grocery shopping. And all of those bonus categories are um, applicable in Australia as well. So when I go to a restaurant in Australia or go to Coles and Woolies or whatever, and I use the Chase card, um, I get all of those bonus category um, points as well, which helps a lot because typically you get one point Chase points per US dollar. So yeah. with the exchange rate and everything else, it would be like, you know, 1.4, 1.5 cents per, uh, per dollar in Aussie dollar. Uh, but if you get a get a double or triple, you know, bonus category, then it will bring uh, the uh, the cost down less than one cents per dollar, which is a very good, um, uh, very good value for the points. Considering that the points are more valuable to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I guess then you'd have a credit card bill in US dollars, which you um, would have to pay off in US yes, dollars. Yes, that's the right. Amount. That's right. It's it's just a normal. You get a you get the um, the bill every month, or not the bill, the statement every month. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you need to pay that. Um, now, how you pay that, different people might have different uh, different ways to pay that. You can probably the most expensive one, or if you want to risk it, is just to uh, have an international uh, money exchange. Uh, things like, you know, xe.com or whatever number of, you know, um, exchangers online, you use those. Of course, there are some fees associated with that. Um, some people, depending on how many transactions or how much transaction you have per month, you might get some good deals uh, for um, online exchangers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to have a global banking system with, uh, like you know, City or Amex or those sort of things, you can transfer money between your accounts in different uh, currency de- denominations. So you can use that to pay those uh, those cards off uh, every month. So uh, different people, whatever they have the, at their disposal, use that. Yeah, and there are there are some Australian banks that offer sort of global or multi-currency accounts. I believe TransferWise has one. Citibank, yes. as you say, has That's one. Right. You, right. you can load a, a bank account with US dollars and just pay it off there with, right. with minimal, minimal or no fees. So. Exactly. 
Exactly. So if yeah, if you can get a US credit card, you do have to physically be in the US to apply That's for right. it or have a social security number. But That's right. um, if you if you are able to get one, you can certainly get some better deals than oh, here in Australia. Def- definitely, definitely. And one of the things I can recommend to your to your listeners, if uh, the next time they are in the US, they can physically walk into a bank and ask to open a normal you know, saving or transaction bank just account. Just a bank account. Just yeah. a bank account. And it might be that, you know, later on in the subsequent visits or something, um, the, the bank might feel comfortable extending credit to them. Right, so because you have a history with the bank. You have then. a history with the bank. So they might, I don't know, but they might extend the credit history. So, so the, uh, credit so that you might open a credit card with the bank. Well, there you go. So for those who have asked me about US credit cards, I hope that was helpful. Thanks so much, Hussein, for coming back on the podcast. No worries. You're welcome. Well, I hope you found those interviews interesting. Before I wrap up today's episode, I got a question following the last episode from an AFF member called Open Seat. Now, in the last episode, I said that Asiana Club was my favorite frequent flyer program for earning status, and Open Seat would like to know more about why that is. Now, before I go on, I should point out that I actually dedicated an an episode to the Asiana Club Frequent Flyer Program last year. In episode 11 of this podcast, I spoke to tennis umpire John Blom, who has lifetime Star Alliance gold status through Asiana Club. And in that interview, we talked in quite a lot of detail about the program. Um, Now, the good news is nothing really seems to have changed very much with Asiana Club since that interview. So uh, if you'd like, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 11. But... Basically, Asiana Club makes it ridiculously easy to earn and maintain Star Alliance Gold status. For starters, Asiana Club uses two-year membership terms instead of the usual one-year, and these membership terms are based on the date you join the program. So, for example, if you join on the 1st of January 2021, your your membership term is basically for two years from that date, and the next one will start on the 1st of January 2023, then the 1st of January 2025, and so on. Now, with Asiana Club, you only have to earn 40,000 miles from Asiana or other Star Alliance flights in your two-year membership term to earn Asiana Club Diamond status, which is equivalent to Star Alliance Gold. Now, you then get to keep that status for the rest of your two-year membership term plus the next term, so for another two years after that. And then to renew in your next two-year membership term, you only have to earn 30,000 miles, so it's only three quarters of what you needed to get in the first place. That's basically 15,000 miles per year when most other Star Alliance programs make you fly 50,000 miles. That's five zero um, each year. If you happen to have certain Asiana affiliated credit cards, the requirements are even lower, which is just crazy. Although those credit cards are unfortunately not really available to Australians. And there is no requirement really to ever actually fly on an Asiana aircraft. You can earn um, those miles either from Asiana or any combination of Star Alliance Airlines. Uh, um, now, there is a bit of a catch here, and this is the case I, I should point out for many frequent flyer programs um, within the Star Alliance, not just for Asiana Club, but some of the cheaper economy fare classes on Star Alliance partner airlines don't earn any Asiana Club miles. So if you're often traveling on discount economy tickets on um, on Star Alliance airlines other than Asiana, you might not earn for those. And just to give you an example, the lower, like the cheaper economy tickets on Air New Zealand and Lufthansa, which are probably the two Star Alliance airlines that I normally use the most, uh, they don't earn any Asiana Club miles, um, which is a, a bit of a problem. And then that does actually make a difference to me because those are the airlines I'm, I'm flying quite a lot. Um, 
by comparison, I, I currently use United Mileage Plus and the lower fare classes on Air New Zealand and the Lufthansa Group Airlines do earn United Miles. So that that is something to keep in mind. But um, that said, um, if you can just fly even one return business class trip from Australia to Europe or vice versa every two years, that would almost be enough um, to, you know, requalify for Star Alliance Gold each to every two years. And even um, like Air China, for example, uh, has deals quite regularly out of Europe for return business class flights to Australia or New Zealand for less than $3,000. Now I know I know Air China is not necessarily the most prestigious of airlines, and of course um, you probably won't be able to to fly them at the moment with the current restrictions. But um, yeah, you can earn quite a lot of miles, almost enough to requalify for Star Alliance Gold for yeah, not really not very much money. So um, yeah, Asiana Club definitely worth looking into. You can also get lifetime Star Alliance Gold status after earning just half a million miles in total um, with the Asiana Club program, which again is just so much lower than what you would need to earn with other uh, Star Alliance programs um, of the ones that do offer Star Alliance uh, lifetime status. Not all of them do. Now, to be honest, I am a little bit worried that Asiana could eventually devalue the program at some point. Uh, a bit like Korean Air have announced that they're going to do next year with their SkyPass program, although they at least did give um, more than a year of notice, so that was polite of them. Um, and if if Asiana Club does devalue, I might have to reconsider my choice of airline, but so far the good value is very much intact, and as long as they don't make any changes to the program, I will be looking to make the switch um, at some point over from United to Asiana Club. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Hossein Saifzadeh, and thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, you can check out the episode notes. And here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss this episode, provide feedback or suggestions about the podcast, or ask me a question for a future episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I would really appreciate if you just take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travelers. Until then, safe travels.